Welcome everybody back into the sanctuary. We're going to get going here. City on a Hill. This is uh, our second installment. What we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is going through our values as a church. Uh, they're written up on the walls here, uh, but more than just being words on a wall, we want these to be part of our culture, who we are, how we do things, how we follow God. Uh, so we're going to be unpacking those things a little bit. Uh, I, let me pray, and then we'll we'll kind of set this up and get into the Word together. Y'all ready to get into the Word? Okay, good. I like that. I'm preaching with you, Maureen. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you that that you're here to teach. You're here to to draw us close, to draw us near to you. And so, Holy Spirit, we submit to you. We yield to you in your direction this morning. God, we thank you that you think generationally, you think big, you think uh, even bigger and, and beyond what the ways that we sometimes limit ourselves or limit you. And so, God, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to see things the way that you see them. Uh, and Lord, I, I just thank you for doing a powerful work in us. Holy Spirit, where we need conviction, I pray that you would bring it. Our hearts would be soft to it. Where we need direction and guidance, God, we look to you for that. We thank you for everything that you want to say and do. And we yield to you right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, we were digging into now this, this week and in the coming weeks, being a city on a hill. And where this comes from is Matthew chapter 5. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the people listening to him, the people who would be his followers, his people, he says that you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. Uh, and so he's, he's destined, he's called his people to be something drastically different in the middle of the world around them. Something that is set up on a hill that people who are walking in darkness, who are living just according to the systems and the patterns of the world, can look to and see something different. See something that is not of this world, but is in this world that's speaking of a kingdom that is beyond, that is bigger. And so that's ultimately what we're living out, what we want to live out. And so we as God's church, and I say we as God's church as in every single believer, every single Christian on this earth who's called on the name of Jesus, we're to live a different kind of life. And so what we're getting into here is how do we specifically here at Victory Life Church, here at Victory Life Church, Boswell, how do we live this out? What, is, what does it look like for us? And we've set these things as our, our core values as a church. That, yeah, these things are not the gospel in and of themselves, but if we can commit ourselves to these things, to the word and to being relational people, to focusing on, on family, to focusing on being generationally minded and generosity and integrity, if we can focus in on these things and really live these things out, then each of these values really becomes this city on a hill, this light of the world that people will look to and Jesus said would give glory to his Father in heaven. That's what we're trying to do here. We're, we're ultimately trying to bring some glory to the Father in heaven that people would see our good works, glorify him and be drawn to him. That's the goal and that's the aim. And so, so as we're unpacking these things, we're saying, okay, these are our values here. If we live these things out, 
we devote ourselves, commit ourselves to these things as individuals and as a church, that this is how we live out what it means to be a city on a hill here. And so this morning, we're going to specifically be talking about being a generationally minded church, being generationally minded. And I just want to give a sneak preview that uh, in the weeks to come, I'm excited about different people, other voices that we're going to hear sharing. So uh, we, I haven't officially got him confirmed, but I'm pretty sure I can convince my father-in-law who uh, was a preacher for many years to come and preach one of these here over the next couple of weeks. I'm excited to hear from him. Uh, Pastor Connor is going to be preaching to us one of these weeks. Uh, Pastor Craig Smee will be here. I don't know if any of y'all have heard of him, but uh, the, some of you know him as the crazy South African. He will be back in town one of these weeks to come and preach to us. And So we've got a lot of fun voices that I think are coming our way, but Let's just dig into it and get ready to go, uh, starting with generational. So I, um, I set this up a little bit last week. I gave kind of a broad overview of each of these things. And so some of this isn't necessarily a surprise, but our God is a generational God. Our God is a generational God. And what I want to unpack a little bit of what I mean whenever I say that. God is committed to working in this earth generationally. You and I, it's very easy for us to get short-sighted based on what our experience is, what we're going through in the moment, what we're experiencing right now. We can get short-sighted. And, but we serve a God who has been around since around has existed and will always be. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He, our God exists even outside and beyond time. And so he's not surprised by anything. He is right there with us in the moment. He's near, again, like I said earlier, he's near to the brokenhearted, as his word says. He's near to us. He's close to us. Yet at the same time, he's so beyond an other that he has this perspective that moves beyond just what our experience is. So just like he's with us, he's with us in that moment, he still knows the end at the beginning. And so we're with someone or someone is with us, rather, who has been through it before, who knows our temptations, knows our experiences, and is bigger and goes beyond those things. And so we can get limited, and we can limit what God wants to do in our lives, what God wants to do in the world, whenever we don't have this perspective to think beyond just our experience, beyond just our timeline and our lifetime, but to consider what God wants to do centuries past us and what he's done centuries before us and where we fit into that larger story of who God is and how big he is. He's a generational God. If you look at the, in the book of Matthew, it begins with a genealogy, even just talking about how Jesus got here. The, the first bit of it was so-and-so was so-and-so's dad, and then he was so-and-so's dad, and he begat this person and that. And, and it can be a little bit of a drudgery to go through, but it's important. The, the writer of that gospel uh, thought it important to show and to, for us to see this is how the man, Jesus, God made flesh physically through God's people. This is how he got here. These are the generations that came. And there's names in there that we don't have any other stories about from the Bible other than that they were the they were so-and-so's son and then so-and-so's dad. And that's all we know about them. 
But God saw fit, saw it important to include them there in the story of Jesus, how he got here to just show again how committed God is generationally. These things that happened long ago, God had a plan for to do maybe centuries later. And we mentioned this last week too, that God is referred to numerous times throughout Scripture as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Specifically referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That these three generations, uh, one after another, that He's the God who sees and operates generationally. If you look in, uh, in Deuteronomy, it, so in, in a couple of these places, I'll go to Deuteronomy first. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, uh, I, I'll actually, um, I'll back up to verse 7. So it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And continuing, he says, and He repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying Him. He will not, by destroying them, He will not be slack with the one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. He said uh, up to a thousand generations he's there with, with those who love him. And even if you go to Exodus, they're talking through these ten commandments or all the commandments of the Lord. He said not to bow to a graven image, um, but that the Lord is a jealous God because the Lord's a jealous God. And he says he visits the iniquities upon those who hate him up to the third and fourth generation. And honestly, I'll just be real with y'all a little bit. My individualistic mindset that, you know, I grow up thinking I'm special because I'm an individual and nobody's like me, all that kind of stuff. I hear that and I'm like, wow, that kind of offends my individualistic sensibilities that God would visit the iniquity of the, those who hate him on the third and fourth generations. Am, am I alone or anybody else kind of see, oh, well, that seems unfair, God. What, you should let people choose. And Well, you know, there are examples and God does, he does give people a choice. He does give people autonomy and the ability to choose him. And you can reverse these things. But at the same time, God knows that the sin of one generation doesn't just stay with that generation. That there are things, decisions that I make, I have to recognize, I have to be aware that decisions that I make affect what my, how my kids grow up. And those decisions even affect how their kids are going to grow up. And it's short-sighted, it's ignorant of us to just think, oh, well, I'm an individual, I make my own decisions, I make my own choices, and they're going to make their own, and the ones after them are going to make their own. No, God has this generational mindset to know and to see the things you do matter not just in this lifetime, but beyond. They have ripple effects throughout generations. 
that to commit your life to loving God and serving God, that has a ripple effect even to a thousand generations. And to choose to hate God, to choose to, to live your life in conflict with Him and to run from Him, that also has an effect on generations to come. That affects people. And so to think generational, if we're a church that thinks generationally like God does, then that means that we're not just in it for this moment, not just in it for this decade, for, for what it, our experience is right now, but we're entering into God's way of thinking that considers generations to come, what we're passing down, what we're leaving, and even what we're receiving from those who have come before us. So, so what's at stake if we don't think generationally? If we're, so if this wasn't a value, if this is, is something that we didn't care about, what would be at stake? A few things come to mind. And honestly, there's probably a lot. I believe that one thing that's at stake if we don't think this way is unrealized potential, unrealized and unused giftings. Uh, you know, I, I think about an older generation looking down on and not appreciating, not uh, trying to draw the most out of a younger generation. And there's so much potential in people who are younger. Uh, so, so many giftings, so many abilities, capabilities that if we don't think generationally and if we're not committed to empowering the next generation to come up, then there's unrealized giftings and potential that the church doesn't get to experience. That, that per- doesn't get to be drawn out of that person. It's the same with the flip. If, we, if you reach a certain age and it's like, oh, well, you're... Old news now, we're just waiting to get you to the funeral day or whatever. Sorry, that sounded really bad, but I'm, I'm just taking it to the logical conclusion, okay? Nobody would say that out loud, but some people do feel overlooked and unimportant as they reach a certain age or uh, they feel like they've been passed over. How much unrealized gifting and talent and ability is there whenever somebody's just overlooked because, oh, well, they're older, I'm not considering them. If we think generationally, then we know that the older generation has so much to offer. There's so much potential. There's so much power. There's so much wisdom. There's so much gifting there that we have to, we, we must draw from and we must appreciate. And the same with the younger generation. We, we have to appreciate these things. There would be so many giftings that would just go unused, unappreciated if we don't think generationally. It could, man, offense, pride. Th- these are things that are at stake. Uh, repeating generational cycles. If we don't think generationally, if we don't look to the generations that came before us or the older ones uh, to seek wisdom and to seek guidance, y'all, we could repeat the same exact mistakes and not learn from people who have gone through things before. If we don't think generationally. If we don't consider that. It's short-sighted and it costs us so much if we don't do that. So, so there's a lot at stake here. I want to, I want to read a story from Scripture because as I, I think about this, how much there is at stake for us to to think generationally. My mind, I gravitate towards stories. How many of y'all just enjoy hearing stories? Okay, I think my my guess is that all of us are wired to appreciate and like stories. We, we just do that naturally. So there's a story that came to my mind, and I've taught this 
uh, here on a Wednesday night. This is a couple years ago now, but I think it's, it bears repeating. In this story that I feel describes so well how beautiful it can be for people to think generationally, to work generationally, and see what God can do with it. There's two people from Scripture that come to mind. Maybe you're familiar with this story. If you are, that's great. This is a refresher. This will be fun. If you've never heard this story before, even better. I've got a good one for you, okay? So this is the story of Esther, a girl named Esther and an old guy named Mordecai who God used, people from two different generations used and like just wove their giftings, their perspectives together in such a powerful way to save God's people. So uh, Esther is a book of the Bible. So this story has its own book devoted to it. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to be kind of just moseying my way through it uh, this morning. So I'll focus on a few verses here, but mostly I just kind of want to tell the story. Y'all cool if I tell the story? Okay, good. I'm glad I got amens. Because if you didn't let me, then I wouldn't really have a message to preach this morning. So thank you for letting me tell the story. This story begins with a king in this uh, huge banquet festival. His name, uh, so in my translation, it's Ahasuerus, which is hard to pronounce. He's also... Uh, the Greeks called him Xerxes, which is one I'm more familiar with. So I'm going to call him Xerxes through this story. So King Xerxes, he's got all these people, dignitaries from other countries, and he's showing off how great his kingdom is, how lavish it is. He's throwing this huge party. Everything is really great. And then he decides that he's going to do a, a brilliant thing, and he's going to call his wife. Uh, she was hosting a whole other banquet for the ladies in another place. He said, I'm going to call my wife. She's really good looking. I'm going to come bring her over here and show her off to all my guy friends. Y'all think that's a good idea? No, <laughs> not a good idea. Xerxes, this powerful king, and it, the story is telling like how lavish the place is. They've got these, they're describing the goblets and the curtains and the, there's, uh, you know, he was drunk, it said. He was merry with wine, and so he thought this was a good decision. I'm going to bring Queen Vashti in here to come show off for my guy friends. We all know that's a bad idea. Guess what Vashti says? No. To the king, to King Xerxes. Uh, so King Xerxes and his advisor friends, they get together and they have this, <laughs> they have this meeting and they say, listen, Vashti just said no. If word gets out that Queen Vashti could say no to King Xerxes, then all the wives throughout all the kingdom are going to be causing problems to all these guys. So we got to nip this in the bud. That's my translation. It's a, but if you go read this, honestly, this is a pretty hilarious story at times. Uh, it's laughable. So they say, okay, we can't let this word get out. We got to do something. And so... Um, so King Xerxes is like, okay, yeah, she's fired as my wife, and we're going to host a beauty pageant for all of my kingdom, and we're going to get the finest lady in here to come be a replacement for Queen Vashti. Y'all think Xerxes is a smart guy? No. <laughs> I don't think so either, but this is his idea, or, you know, his, he's got counselors around him. I think it's a good idea. So anyway, this is what happened. So Enter now 
our main characters, these generational thinkers and workers who I want us to learn from this morning, Mordecai and Esther. So I'm going to, we're now, that brings us through chapter one. Here in chapter two, uh, starting at verse five. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, that's like the, the capital where Xerxes was, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. So, first thing that I would just want to point out here, Mordecai shows that he's the cousin of Esther, but he's caring for her. He he'd cared for her since she was young. She didn't have father or mother. First thing, I, I'm just going to be drawing out a couple points, things that I want us to focus in on, hone in on a little bit as we consider their relationship here. One is that Mordecai, we're going to have Mordecai just represent the older generation. And Esther is going to represent the younger generation, just in broad terms. Mordecai, this older generation, one of the first things that we see that I believe we can learn from if we're going to be a generational church is that Mordecai cared for her. Mordecai cared for Esther. Simple, basic. But I'm telling you, I've seen a whole lot of people, I've seen a whole lot of young people get ripped for the holes in their jeans, pun intended, get ripped for the holes in their jeans by an older generation that had no relationship with them. That didn't, and sometimes it's, it, obviously that's a joke, but like it's in jest at times, but sometimes there's advice given, there's criticism offered, there's suggestions, whenever there's no relationship, whenever they don't know that they're cared for, that they're loved. And I'm reminded, so uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a quote that I've heard often that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Absolutely, we need to be a generational church. We, We need to be learning from the older generation, teaching the younger generation. But for that relationship to really have the wisdom received as it should, Young people have to know that we care. The younger generation has to know that the older generation cares about it. There's got to be relationship built. There's got to be care there. Mordecai has been with Esther here since the beginning, since her early days of life. He's been caring for her. He's been loving for her. So as we go on in the story, as Mordecai offers some advice and some wisdom, there's already a relationship there. There's already care, mutual trust there. So that's my first little bit that if you find yourself maybe in the older generation, wanting people to listen to you, wanting people to respect you, want to be, wanting to be heard and heeded. I just want to admonish you to show how much you care first. Let that be communicated before anything else. Your care, your concern, your love. And as that relationship is built, watch how people respond. Watch how whenever that younger generation knows that you care, knows that you care about them, how much they care what you know and what you have to say to them to offer them. So Mordecai cared for Esther. That's a big one. Seems pretty basic, but uh, sometimes we overlook it, all right? So let's learn from that. 
as we move on here, so uh, Mordecai, he cared for her. She was entered into this beauty pageant, and Mordecai had advised her. He said, don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. Because again, Mordecai is a pretty wise guy. And as we go on in the story, you're going to see why this is important. But he advised her and she listened to him uh, to to not let anybody know that she was a Jew. And so it it even says it here in uh, Esther 2, uh, verse 20. Esther had not made known her kindred to her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. If I'm going to... I know these are basic things. If I'm going to offer any more admonishment for us to be a generational church, it's for those who would consider yourselves in the younger generation. Be obedient. Obey. Listen to what somebody else says. Be moldable. Be malleable. You know, God says obedience is better than sacrifice. He told King Saul that. Obe- I, all this sacrifice is, God, I'm going to go fast. God, I'm going to pray 40 days and 40 nights. He said, well, just obey what I've told you. And how are we going to learn how to obey a God who we can't see whenever we can't obey our fathers here on earth who we do see? How can, how can we obey and honor God's authority in heaven whenever we can't obey and honor authority that's set up here on earth uh, for each of us? Y'all, the first Bible verse that I ever memorized was Ephesians 6. One through three, for children to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, it's the first commandment with the promise that you'll live long on the earth and things will go well with you. You know why I learned that first in my life? Because my parents were the ones shoving it down my throat. <laughs> so there's a reason for that. But I know, like that one could always, I could always bring that up to mind because my parents were always, hey, remember this first commandment with the promise. Say your memory verse. <laughs> Say your Bible verse. But it's important. If I, as I learn to obey my parents, to listen to what they said, to listen to their advice, then my heart is soft to the advice and the wisdom and direction of the Lord too. If we're going to be a generational church, we have to be ready, willing, open to, to obey, to be obedient, to submit. Uh, so so there's, there's some exhortation there. Let's get back to the story here. This is where it gets really good. So... Uh, Esther joins this beauty pageant. Um, Mordecai tells her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Enter Haman. Haman, Haman, Haman. Interesting fella right here. So Haman is the bad guy. He's like the most quintessential bad guy that you've ever met. Uh, Oh, sorry. One more thing in the story before we get to Haman. So Mordecai, he was sitting at the city gates and he heard two people who were plotting to kill the king. And so what he does is he goes and tells Esther because Esther won the beauty pageant. She's with the king. She's got his favor. Everything's going well there. Mordecai tells Esther about this plot that he heard of at the the city gates. So she goes, warns the king, found him out. They hung the guys. Uh, So anyway, insurrection averted. That's an important piece of the story. So then we get to Haman. Haman comes in and he is exalted to this high status in the kingdom. Xerxes likes him. But Mordecai does not bow his knee to Haman. He doesn't praise him and honor him like all the other people do. So Haman hates Mordecai. Hates Mordecai. Doesn't like him. But what Haman decides is instead of just like, you know, killing Mordecai, dealing with it there, he's like, I'm going to come after all of every single person that's associated with Mordecai. He wants to like end this guy. 
So Haman goes to King Xerxes and he says, I've got a great idea. Let's make a thing where on one day uh, out in the future, we're going to set a day uh, on the calendar. Let's set a date for this where anybody and everybody can kill any Jew that they want to. Right? That's terrible. It's terrible. But this was Haman's idea. Xerxes, smart guy as he is, is like, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go ahead and put that in writing, decree, put it out into all the land. And the specific wording here, if we go to Esther 3, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So Haman's big idea that he brings to the king, let's set this day where people can just have free reign to annihilate to kill, to destroy, to annihilate the Jews and to plunder their goods, everybody. Pretty horrendous, pretty terrible. So this is Haman's vengeance against Mordecai, this one guy that he has a problem with. He says, well, we're going to take it to everybody. And that's what happens. So, so here now we need to see Mordecai and Esther working together again. Uh, so Mordecai, he hears this news. Oh, also, this is just a fun little aside. Uh, so at the very, the last verse of uh, chapter three, so it says the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. <laughs> and, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That to me, just like, again, I think this story of course, this is a terrible thing that's happening, but it's just hilarious how aloof these guys are. So Xerxes and Haman, they're like, hey, great idea. Yeah, send this proclamation. So they sit down to have a drink together, just relaxing, and the entire city is thrown into confusion. You know, Jew or not Jew, you see a decree that says, hey, on such and such a day, you can kill you and plunder your goods. Everybody would be confused and wondering what is going on here. But Xerxes, Haman, they sit down to a drink, enjoy themselves a little bit. So Mordecai hears this and he goes into mourning, sackcloth and ashes. He's crying. He's uh, like in the streets just all this morning. And Esther, so Esther is this, she's in the palace. She's with the king. Yeah, she, she has this Jewish heritage, but in the palace life, she can live like a queen. She can live enjoying the goods of the empire enjoying what great things that the empire and the king have to offer. And so she's a little bit aloof, it seems, from what her people are going through because she reaches out to Mordecai and says, give this guy some clothes, like things are going to be okay. And Mordecai, he has to send word through this messenger to talk to her and tell her what is going on. She, she's like aloof. She's, she doesn't exactly know what's going on here. And so Mordecai reaches out to her gives her what is happening and the implications here. And so another thing I believe that if we're, um, if we're a generational church, if we are operating generational, something that the Mordecai generation has to offer to this younger generation is perspective. Perspective and an example. Mordecai lives an example in front of her. He goes into mourning here and he has to bring perspective to her. She is a Jew. But she, in her ignorance, in her naivety, she's 
live in the palace life. She's enjoying what goods there are to offer. And Mordecai has to remind her, he has to bring her perspective from his from his generation, from where he's at. He has to bring some perspective to Esther on what exactly is going on. So I want to read here uh, chapter 4, verse 7. And Mordecai told him, this is a messenger, all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. He's trying to bring some perspective to Esther here. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that they may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. She's coming back with the repercussions and the consequences of what could happen. If I just show up to the king's court, I could be killed. Yeah, she's the queen. She's got some privileges there, but it didn't take long for Vashti to get the boot. So she's not necessarily safe. So, and then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Again, Mordecai bringing perspective. That what this generation has to offer to bring perspective, to bring some understanding to the younger generation. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's probably one of the most popular verses from Esther. Like, who knows if you're not here for such a time as this, for this time, this moment in history, maybe that's what you're here for. He has to remind her, he says, I love his perspective too. As the older generation is bringing perspective, he has a perspective of God's ultimate deliverance. He said, our people will be delivered. God is going to deliver us, but it'll probably be after you and your whole household perish. And think about the fact that you might be here for such a time as this, exactly in this time and place in the palace, not just for your own benefit, but for God's purposes, for what he wants to do for the deliverance of his people. He's putting this perspective here in the next generation. And here's Esther's response. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther, this next generation, the younger generation, Esther right here brings some action to the, to the picture. Mordecai, he brings this perspective. He tries to get through to her. This is what's going on. You're here for such a time as this. God's going to deliver his people, but you might perish in the process if you don't wake up. Bringing this perspective to her. And then here's what Esther has to offer. She wakes up, she receives this perspective, and she brings the action that is needed in the story. 
Because she's the one with the position of power, with the influence, who's valued in the moment, who can actually do something about it. She brings some action to the point of saying, I'm going to go do this even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Amen. If I die, I die. She brings this almost, you know, sometimes youthfulness brings a recklessness to it, right? Sometimes the younger you are, the more willing you are to do something really dumb for the sake of God even. And so she says, okay, here I am. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm doing it now. She brings the action here that she's going and doing from this encouragement from Mordecai. And if I perish, I perish. And now check this out. This is really cool. In verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. That Mordecai generation, something that he was willing to do if we're going to be a generational church, he was willing and able to listen to her instruction. Again, it was so important for Esther to grow up being obedient to Mordecai. Obeying, listening to his perspective, to what he has to offer. But at the end of the day, whenever it comes, there's this connection, there's this unity and working together where even Mordecai had the humility to, to know when it was time to listen to Esther. Because this is what's cool. By the time the baton gets passed here, Esther doesn't just go to the king and beg. The rest of the story is pretty epic. Esther's a smart, smart woman. So she doesn't just do exactly to the T what Mordecai says. Mordecai says, go beg before the king. But she has an idea of her own. And Mordecai listens to her. They go and pray and fast. I'll kind of zoom through the rest of this story here. But uh, I would encourage you to go read it. So Esther goes from there. She holds a banquet uh, with the king. And she invites Haman to come join the banquet. Haman thinks he's really special. He's awesome. And the king says, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. She said, please, let's come back again tomorrow and I want to throw another banquet for you. King's like, okay, cool. Haman goes home. He's happy as a lark. He's like, I was brought into this banquet. Just me, Esther, and the king. I'm a big shot. I'm a big deal. He goes back to his friends and his wife, tells them all how great he is, all of his accomplishments, and he says, but this Mordecai, Mordecai guy keeps upsetting me. And so his friends, there's so many good advisors in this story. His friends and his wife say, well, hey, check this out. How about let's build a gallows 50 cubits high, very, very tall, and go talk to the king tomorrow to ask Mordecai to be hanged from it. And Haman says, Brilliant idea. And so he goes into work the next morning, just excited about what he's about to get to ask of the king. This is what happens, though. At the same time that Haman's having that conversation with his family and friends, the king is having trouble sleeping at night. And so he calls somebody to come read of the good deeds of the king in front of him as he, you know, to fall asleep to, I suppose. They come and read this thing, and what do you know? They're reading this book, and they happen upon the story of Mordecai saving the king's life just a little while ago. And the king was like, this guy has not been honored for this. He's saved my life. Why haven't we honored him? So Haman waltzes into work the next morning, excited about this request he's about to make of the king. And the king says, wait, Haman, before you say what you're going to say, I have a question for you. What should I do to honor someone in like the best way possible. Haman, cool guy that he is, thinks the king's talking about me right now. And so he gives this suggestion, ride him on a horse through town, shout his praises, yada, yada, yada. The king's like, 
great idea. Go get Mordecai and do everything that you just said for him. And oh my gosh, it really is funny. Uh, so then Haman goes the next day and is all sad and talk to his friends. But uh, so I just imagine what that dinner party was like. And his what's funny too, his friends told him, they said, if Mordecai is a Jew, there's no way you're going to stand up against him. These people knew, even, even these wicked people who were saying, yeah, go hang the guy. They knew, oh wait, he's a Jew? Nah, you don't stand a chance, Haman. He's one of God's chosen people. He's one of God's elect. I don't care how big you are up in the empire, Haman. You don't stand a chance. So Haman comes the next day to Esther's banquet that she's prepared uh, with the king. And uh, Esther tells the king, she said, somebody has conspired to kill my people, to destroy my people. And the king, in an outrage, is like, well, who did this? What terrible person would do that? And she said, that guy right there, nobody on this side of the, Haman, it was Haman. And so what wonderful thing happens, Haman ends up getting hanged on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. I would say poor Haman, but the guy was just terrible. It's hard to feel bad for him. Hard to feel bad for him. But so that came full circle for him. And then what they did, so after that, again, the king is saying, up to half my kingdom, Esther, whatever you want. She finally makes this request. So again, she doesn't just beg for the king to help her. She orchestrates this awesome, like intricate plan for things to come full circle for Haman. And she said, okay, so the decree had already gone out. The king's decree had gone out. So instead of like just sending a reversal, like saying, hey, never mind, you know, because it's a king's decree, it, it has to stand. She said, send out another decree that says the Jews are allowed to defend themselves on this day that, uh, you know, people are allowed to do whatever they want. Just send out this decree that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. And there was fear of the Jews. There's fear of Mordecai, fear of God's chosen people. And how it ended up is on that day, anyone who still decided that they did want to take a step. I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to say that. Anyone who said that they they wanted to try to come against the Jews, they were defeated. The Jews beat them. They destroyed them. And then Esther went back to the king and said, hey, let's, uh, king, if you don't mind, let's let this happen one more day. We still got some work to do. And they went and defeated all of their enemies. All of their enemies. It came completely full circle. God bringing, uh, okay, I've got to read this. Sorry, uh, this one, this is the last one because this is where we see Jesus here. I've been talking so much about generational work. Uh, Mordecai and Esther working together and God using generations in this powerful way. Y'all, before I get to this, Esther by herself is another pretty girl in the king's palace. Mordecai by himself is an old curmudgeon in the gate. The way that they were able to work together to, to see what one another had to offer, for Esther to obey and listen to Mordecai's perspective, for Mordecai to trust and so trust into that relationship with Esther that she can do this and to listen to her, the way they were able to work together orchestrated God's ultimate plan of redemption for his entire people. Each of them individually by themselves couldn't have done this, couldn't have made this work, of course, without God, but even without each other, God in each other. And it's the same with us. Y'all. Me by myself, one generation by themselves, 
We're short-sighted. We, we don't know, we don't have a perspective that we need. Uh, an older generation by themselves uh, doesn't have the, the influence and the, the, uh, the ear of a younger generation to, to do something uh, big in the world around us. But if we can operate, if we can think generationally, allow God to make us open to what the other has to offer, God can do powerful things. He can do powerful, powerful things. But this is where it points us to Jesus in, in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, this is the best thing. This is so cool. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's the coolest part of the story. And this is where it points us to Jesus here. Because yes, the God's people in this moment were saved from that decree. But you and I, as God's people, there was a decree of sin and death that was pronounced over us from the very beginning, whenever Adam and Eve fell into sin. There was a decree that you and I were destined to a life of death and to, to a life of sin and to a life of destruction. But that very decree that went out in Jesus, that moment of redemption in him whenever he was killed on a cross, taking a punishment for sin, going to death, going to the grave, that very thing when the enemy thought, aha, I've gained mastery over God, finally. I've killed his only begotten son, God made flesh. Finally, I've gained mastery over him. That very day, that's when mastery was gained over the enemy, over sin and death. It's in him that we have fullness, eternal life, fullness of life. It's because of that sacrifice. So that very day that the enemy tried to bring his people down and to capture them, take them down, that's that very day that God gained mastery over the enemy on our behalf. Praise Jesus for it. Thank you, God, for that mastery, for that. Amen. This is the last thing I want to share. I know, I'm sorry. I've probably gone on too long. When I tell stories, Stories are fun. Go read Esther. But we've talked about God being a generational God and visiting uh, the punishment for sin on generations, visiting uh, blessings for righteousness on generations. Maybe you're in here today and you think, well, I've got some messed up parents and I've been messed up. So am I just doomed for failure? No, so God thinks generationally. And in his awesome wisdom of thinking generationally, this is what he did. He said, we as sons, as uh, daughters, as mothers, as fathers, we can really mess things up for the generations to come. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to welcome them into my family. I'm going to make them a part of my generation. And I'm going to upset that, that curse and those cycles because they're a part of me now. They're a part of my generation. In Galatians chapter 4, I want to read verses four or 1 to 7. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, you and I, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Doesn't matter what your generation has been up to this point, what your generational legacy, what terrible sinful people you've come from, what kind of poor last name you have. It doesn't matter what that is up to this point because our God, this generational God who seeks to pour out generational blessings, gave his only son so that we could be brought into his family and to receive the generational blessings that come with being in the family of God. And so I want right now, before we finish this service, if you would bow your heads, close your eyes. I know we're all hungry. We're ready to go. We want to go take a nap. But y'all, this is a very important thing right here because this is an opportunity for anyone who maybe hasn't come into the family of God before, for that to happen for them. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never made Him the Lord of your life, then you haven't received the Spirit that the Apostle Paul's talking about to come into our hearts, to reach out and to cry, Abba, Father, to be adopted in as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. If you want that to be your story, if you want to be in that family, if you want to be known not after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God who can change your life, then I'd really like to pray with you. And if that's you this morning, would you raise your hand so I know who I'm praying with and who I'm speaking over? If there's anybody who, who hasn't made the decision to come into the family of God before, I want this to be an opportunity. Okay, thank you, Jesus. We've got nobody raising their hand, which to me I'm going to take as we are people who have called upon the name of the Lord, who God's called to himself, who's made a part of his family. And so I want to pray and just speak a blessing over each of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're wise, that you're knowing that you in your wisdom have made it to where you can pour out generational blessings on people who serve you and love you. God, we thank you for the blessings that you want to pour out to our kids and to our grandkids and to people beyond. Lord, even those of us who don't have children or maybe who, who won't have children, God, I thank you that you're going to continue to pour out blessings on next generations uh, and, and people to come, Lord, even for spiritual children, God. I thank you, God, for spiritual mothers and fathers and grandparents, Lord, who take young people under their wing. Point them in your direction. Give a kingdom perspective of what you want to do, God. And I thank you for orchestrating us to be a generational church that sees generational blessings poured out. In Jesus' name, amen.